This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Throughout the pandemic, the government kept repeating a single refrain as we watched the devastation in long-term care. Minister Marilee Fullerton's message has been that the problems resulted from decades of neglect that predate her and her government is fixing the long-term care system for the future. But are they? The Financial Accountability Office has released its review of the ministry's expenditure estimates. And as you heard in Bob's news, it finds that the government will not meet the first half of its commitment to build 15,000 of 30,000 new beds by 2324. It also finds finds that even if the 35,000 beds come on stream by the end of the decade, it will not be enough to meet growing demand from the aging population. What do you make of this? The numbers to call 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And now I'd like to welcome Peter Weltman, Ontario's financial accountability officer. Hello. Hello. Uh, so, first of all, did any of this surprise you? Well, <clears throat> lots of things can, lots of things in this job can surprise you. So, uh, nothing really. I think the thing that surprised me the most that in some cases we actually projected um, that the government would uh, spend less than the government is projecting. So, <laughs> in one particular instance, with regards to building the new beds. So the reason for that is that we think some of those beds will be delayed. So it's most of mostly a timing thing. But no, really, nothing is is terribly. Terribly new here. Okay, so uh, the first thing, let's drill down on this. There's really a lot of meat in this report. So the average annual growth rate of spending is 9.3%. That's that's a lot, but not enough to do the things that the government has promised. So the 9.3 is is a very big number. Uh, in the last 10 years, government spending has been a roughly 3%, has, has increased by about 3% per year. And really what the 9.3% represents is two significant commitments that the government has made uh, between now and the end of the decade, one of which is to build, to add 30,000 new long-term care beds to the existing stock of about 70-odd thousand, and to provide additional hours of care for each resident per day, going from about 2.75 hours per day of care to about four hours per day of care. So both of those two commitments really drive the significant increase in spending. Right. But uh, did they just not cost it out properly? Did they uh, just promise things that they didn't have money to pay for? What's going on here? So what we did is for the the government didn't provide a long, like a, a plan from here to the to the end of the decade. What the government does, and the reason we we provided our calculation, our estimate to the end of the decade is the government's budget, its overall budget, um, does provide a spending plan 
a notional spending plan to the to 2029-2030 <clears throat> as part of their uh, plan to to get the budget back into balance. So we sort of use that as our baseline for projecting forward all of the various program spending analyses that we've done. We did the healthcare one last uh, two weeks ago. So that's the reason for the for the timeline. And secondly, uh, so so for that reason though, because the government does have a budget out to 29-30 in terms of a notional spending plan. They haven't necessarily provided details on a ministry by ministry level. So our report calculates what we anticipate or we forecast the cost to be of these commitments all you know, overlaid on top of the existing program, and we project that out to that uh, 2930 uh, time horizon. Okay, so the first thing they promised were 15,000 of these 30,000 new beds by uh, 2020. 2022-2023, but uh, you're saying they're going to be at least two years late. Is is that a money thing or is that a, a building thing? We think it's a building thing. Um, that's what we think. That, you know, the money was from what we are what we've understood based on our back and forth with the ministry is that the money is there in the medium term to fund those commitments. Medium term meaning the next three years. So we think it's simply just a building thing. And I think, you know, with for good reason, we have had this global pandemic for the last 15 months, and that certainly has disrupted uh, many schedules. Okay, but then there's this thing that this pandemic thing has caused, and that is the urgency for modernizing some of these beds. We know that some of the worst outbreaks were in these homes where you had multiple people in beds, where there wasn't good ventilation uh, in these older homes, and uh, they don't seem to be that far ahead in redeveloping those either. That is a risk that we do flag in the report. You're right. That is a, a that could be a, a problem to maintaining the existing stock of beds. So it's one thing to build thirty thousand new ones. It's also another thing to make sure the ones you already have in place are brought up to standard so that they can remain in place. And that's we do point out in the in the report. For example, there are seventy four hundred beds right now that were put out of service because of the pandemic, <clears throat> and they may not come back on track due to a whole bunch of reasons. Um, the t- construction timelines we talked about earlier, uh, there are um, about 14,700 beds that are have, that have expired licenses or, or licenses that will expire in the next couple of years, and they do not have redevelopment plans at the moment. So presumably our estimate, the 9.3% growth estimate, assumes that all of these beds will be renovated and be brought into service in time that they won't expire. Uh Uh-huh. Now, there's something that I am not that clear on, and and you refer to uh, a new formula for funding new beds. My understanding is that a lot of uh, this is funded by the private sector. Can you shed some light on that? Sure. So the private sector builds the homes, and they get a subsidy from the government to build those homes. And then they're provided, when they operate those homes and they provide the care, they're provided uh, a, a, a per diem, if you will, from the government to be able to deliver that care. Um, what this new funding formula does is uh, addresses the problem that there wasn't much uptake from the private sector to build new homes because the private sector said that it wasn't economical for them to do so on the current 
subsidy plan. So effectively what the government did is they upped the subsidy just a little bit, the construction portion of that per diem, and they provided a new upfront grant just in about three months in advance to, from prior completion to help uh, move things along. So effectively the government has added the, uh, to the subsidy to encourage uh, more private sector uptake to to build new homes. Okay, I mean, just while everyone is discussing whether uh, the private sector should be continuing to deliver this care, the the that seems that it's entrenched. How much has the subsidy been increased by? The subsidy will go up <clears throat> by roughly forty percent, forty one percent. So right now. On average, if we look at the total subsidy over the 25-year period, it's about $164,000 per bed, and that we expect will go up to roughly $232,000 per bed. And in your estimate, uh, will that do the trick in getting the right number of beds built? We didn't assess that. Um, that was the you know the government's plan to they did what they thought they could to to encourage that behavior. We did not look at that in this in this plan, but we did assume for purposes of our calculation, that the government, as I said, would maintain its existing beds, even the ones that are coming off license, and would be able to add the 30,000. So obviously any change to that for, you know, any change between now and then in terms of uptake from the private sector to build beds or inability to redevelop beds will have an impact on those total numbers. Okay, I want to get to the people staffing those beds. Now, you mentioned that there there's a shortfall between the money and the promises. So the promises uh, is to increase the care to four hours of direct care by 2024-25. And the province, I'm just looking, I forget the number, how many people have they said that they're going to hire to do this? So they they will need an additional 29,000 roughly, uh, 29,200 uh, people to do this by 2024-25, so about 17,000 personal support workers and about 12,200 nurses. However, you have to, on top of that, you have to remember that there's going to be a new 30,000 new beds coming on stream. So you're going to need over and above that 29,000 uh, full-time positions to add the additional care. You still need to provide the base level care for those 30,000 new beds. So really, they're going to need to hire 37,000 personal support workers. And what have they budgeted for? So we, we, our estimate for the next few years is that they're more or less on track. They'll be there, you know, there might be a little bit of a difference between our estimate and their estimate. I think over, over four years, it's about a $50 million difference, which isn't really that much in the scheme when you're talking $5 billion. So we're, we think they have, the, they have set aside the money to, to fully pay for that commitment in mm-hmm. the medium term. In the medium Meaning term. to 2024-25. Now, in the long term, so you have projected the number of Ontarians over 75 to increase by 52% by the end of the decade, while the number of long-term care beds will increase by 38%. So is that a one-to-one ratio that you need? Um, that's a really good question because we don't know what the answer is to that. If you if the assumption is that everybody over the age of or a certain percentage of people over the age of seventy five who need long term care get long term care, then yes, then it is a bit of a one to one ratio. Um, 
So if the new crop of 75-year-olds are, you know, maybe they're healthier, maybe they live longer, maybe there's not as much demand, that's a possibility. Maybe there are other ways of delivering care to those folks. Maybe there's more home care, etc. So there are other ways to do this. We don't obviously get into that. That's not our role. But And we weren't able, and the reason we did it this way too as a percentage of the population is we weren't able to, to provide a... Um, a, uh, a backlog, if you will. So as we did in a previous long-term care report, because of the pandemic, a lot of the movement out of hospitals into long-term care homes, et cetera, has been really upended. So we provide this as an example of, here's what the capacity is to accommodate the pop, the demand, as you've said it, and the, 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 the supply does go up a little bit. It drops a little, it goes up a little bit uh, to 2025, 26, and then it drops off. But basically, in the end of the decade, it'll be lower than it is today. So there'll be less supply for those folks than there is today. Well, beforehand, the waiting lists were generally on the order of over 30,000. Yes. And in our previous long-term care report, we said that the 30,000 beds uh, that the government promised, forget the pandemic for a moment, would still not reduce wait times. It It would barely keep up with the demand because of the aging population. In fact, we would require closer to 55,000 beds in order to keep the wait lists where they were, you know, two years ago. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls. I'm not sure that they relate exactly to these numbers. Dennis in Brampton. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. And your guest touched on my question, and that is given the magnitude of the costs that we're talking about, and also given the preference of many seniors, especially following what happened in the institutional care in the pandemic, uh, I'm wondering, I had wondered if any thought was given to um, home care alternatives, which is what more and more seniors want. And I, I think he did answer that question, but just to reiterate the point, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear, given the magnitude of costs associated with building an institutional care, that alternatives are going to need to be considered. Yeah, he doesn't make the policy. He just uh, analyzes the costs. Are you planning to do a report on home care, such as it is, which is a mess? <laughs> <laughs> this report is uh, is really there to provide MPPs who are part of the Standing Committee on Estimates, who are reviewing the spending plans of the Ministry of Long-Term Care starting tomorrow afternoon to give them some analysis and provide them with some questions that they can ask of the government. And that this is a great one for them to ask. It's not something that we would normally do. Now, an MPP could ask us to look at this program, and we could do that, but it, would, it wouldn't be happening anytime soon. Okay. Yeah. Um, there you go, Dennis. Uh, you. I, I have that, that same question too. I, cause I think they ought to be looking at it, but uh, I'll tell you the way it's organized now, there's never going to be enough money for it. Um, let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. You always have this question when we talk about long-term care. Well, how will it be paid for? Well, in addition, I am curious as to. Whoops. We lost Pat. That might have been something bad that I did with the thing. Uh, anyway, if uh, if Pat, if you call back in in uh, another few seconds, we'll we'll take your call. I'm sorry if that was me inadvertently cutting you off. And let's go to Barry in North York. Hi, Barry. Good afternoon, and good afternoon to your guests. 
Uh, first of all, I wanted to say that I'm really tired of big companies like Rivera making a lot of money off of older citizens for so many decades and not giving them what they deserve. Now, the question I wanted to ask your guests is this. As, correct me if I'm wrong, the information that I have during COVID-19, the inspections that they did on these long-term care nursing homes were by telephone. Um, also, before that, they were doing inspections. They were saying, okay, they called a particular home. Barry, he has nothing to do with the inspections. He's the financial accountability officer. So he just looks at the government's estimates and analyzes it to give the MPPs uh, fodder for questions. Well, in his mind, would he be able to um, answer if those are effective, what he thinks it is? Uh, I don't know. I I I don't imagine. Do, do you cost out the inspections? We didn't do that. Now, the Auditor General has written a lot about this um, uh, in multiple reports, and there's some great information in, in her reports from 2015 and even the most recent one released about two weeks ago. Okay. Uh, she's also written about home care, by the way. <laughs> And things were supposed to change, but I don't think they have. Barry, uh, thanks for your call. Okay, I guess I'll have to call my MPP, then I will be definitely asking that particular person um, whether they think it's effective and and what are we going to do if it's not, because I'm... I'm it's time to call our MPPs and our MPs. About these it it is definitely that. Thanks for your call, Barry. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, Peter Weltman, what would you like to leave us with on this? I really have to echo Barry's comment that that is the role of our elected representatives is to question the government on their spending plans, ask them about, you know, the feasibility of actually implementing or realizing some of the promises that, that they've put forward, such as the additional care, understanding you know, how that's going to get paid for. And I guess the other question, too, is, that it is, is it the right number? How do they know it's the right number? How do they know that four hours is the right number? I mean, we can tell you the four hours does translate to 29,000 people. That's, that's basic math. Um, but that is, you know, is that the right way? Are there other alternatives to delivering um, care to this age group? that maybe is more effective or less costly, et cetera. So these are all great questions for MPPs to ask of the government, and they'll be starting tomorrow in committee. Okay. Thank you so much for that, Peter Weltman. Appreciate it. Very interesting report, I must say. And speaking of long-term care, we're going to pivot just a little bit. And uh, one of the things that we know that that's been happening in long-term care is that many of the residents, virtually all of the residents, have received two doses of vaccine, but many of their caregivers have not. And it means that outbreaks continue in long-term care, outbreaks that prevent residents from going outside or seeing their loved ones. Patricia Tomasi's mother is in a home where only about 60% of the staff have received the shot. And as of May 22nd, just a few days ago, there have been 15 cases among staff and three among residents. Patricia Tomasi joins me now. Hi, Patricia. Hi. I have some updated stats, too, as of last night about the home. Okay, go ahead. So 65% of staff members are fully vaccinated and 78% of staff have received their first dose. 96% of residents are fully vaccinated. So 
I received this information, and thank you so much for having me on the show um, just last night from the home. They're aiming for a 75% fully vaccinated staff. That's like their flu shot threshold. But I don't think we should be dealing with this same threshold for the flu as we do for the pandemic. And my mom continues to be isolated in her room because of a staff COVID outbreak, which is now spread to two residents. Um, and I, I would just, if not mandatory vaccines for staff working in long-term care homes, I think the threshold should at least be what it is for residents. It's like 96% right now. Because otherwise, when will this ever end for our poor long-term care residents? You know, my heart goes out to you and your mother. That is just, to me, so wrong. And... I, you know, our leaders, like they are very worried about stepping on anyone's toes in the United Kingdom. There are nursing home chains that require vaccination uh, for at least for new staff. They have a motto, no jab, no job. And uh, it, to me, it just makes sense. And not only, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to get these stats, but, but the fact is that workers are not even required to disclose whether they are vaccinated or not. And their bosses do keep asking, but uh, I've run into people who don't want to say one way or another, and that is totally within their rights. And it became alarming to me because I'm a designated caregiver. I'm fully vaccinated since the end of February. Um, so is my mom and all the residents in her long-term care home, well, 96% of them. I see the staff on a regular basis. So it became alarming to me when I started having conversations with them and finding out that it's not that they are not taking the vaccine because their doctor told them that they have a health condition and they should not take it. They're telling me they're not taking the vaccine because they don't believe in vaccines or, oops, sorry about that, or they believe the vaccine will harm them. Um, And so that was really alarming to me because even though the home is trying its best, you know, to get them vaccinated. They're having a vaccination clinic this Friday there. But if someone is of the mind that they don't believe in vaccines or that they're afraid of taking the vaccine, um, how will that change their mind uh, by Friday to take the vaccine? It won't. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it absolutely won't. And, you know, I've done shows on this. And yes, everybody has rights to privacy and right to choose their own uh, you know, medical choices. But really, uh, when you're dealing with a very vulnerable qu- uh, population, I question it. And, and do, does, you know, th- that person's right to work without a vaccine because they have, frankly, a, a very ridiculous belief about it. Uh, does that supersede? Why does that supersede your mother's right to a decent quality of life? not to be isolated in her room. Why? Exactly. And so the staff are telling me, you know, it's, it's their right. If it's somebody's right to choose or, or not to have the vaccine, then to your point, isn't it my mother's right then to choose to not have unvaccinated caregivers provide her care? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Well, and, and she can't. And there's the same situation for people who are in 
at home receiving home care. And the people in home care, they are the least burden to the system. They just need a few hours of help here and there or every day, whatever it is. But the the agencies will not guarantee that the people that come into their homes are uh, vaccinated. And those people, they don't have a second shot. They want a second shot, but they don't have one. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And, And there will continue to be COVID outbreaks so long as staff, are not getting vaccinated, which means my mother and other long-term residents will continue to be isolated in their rooms unless public health changes that policy um, so that if even if there's a staff outbreak, that residents will not no longer have to be isolated in their rooms because they're fully vaccinated. I'm the designated caregiver is fully vaccinated, and hopefully they can, a public health will relax those rules then if the Ford government will not condone mandatory vaccination. Something has to change. My mother's having delusions now. She's been alone for so long that she's now thinking that she's in another place and that the PSWs have left her alone. She told me yesterday she wheeled to her door and stuck her head out in the hallway and said, where are you? I miss you. She's just having delusions of being alone this whole time. Um, She hasn't seen, uh, she hasn't touched or hugged her grandkids, my kids, in over a year. Like, this is ridiculous now. We're, we're touting the good news of the general population getting vaccinated. Um, it's time to free long-term care residents and give them the quality of life and dignity that they deserve. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear this. Patricia, my final question to you, when you bring this up to the home, what do they say? You know, I, I, the home is agrees with me and uh well i don't know if they agree with me about mandatory vaccinations but i know they're really trying their best and sending out education and information to their staff and essential caregivers about the importance of vaccination um they take direction from public health and really i'm calling on the ford government to do something either enact mandatory vaccinations of long-term care workers or ease the restrictions on staff and caregivers, uh, sorry, ease the restrictions on residents and caregivers like myself and my mom who are fully vaccinated. I can't even take her out. Like, she hasn't been outside of the long-term care home, never mind her room, in over a year. Like, we used to be able to take her, like, back to my house for a couple hours to get her, you know, outside. Of course, they used to do trips. Like, she can't leave her room. I was able to take her outside yesterday just for, for, uh, uh, you know... Uh, because they relaxed the rules on her floor, and I think it's because I went to the media. But uh, public health and the Ford government need to do something because it's just, this is wrong, as you said. This is absolutely wrong that we're continuing to do this to our seniors that have given their lives to us uh, over the last, uh, you know, 80 or 90 years. Uh, This is not how they should be living out the rest of their days. Okay. Um, Patricia Tomasi, I'm so sorry to hear all this, but good for you for bringing our attention to this and speaking out about it. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. On the other side of it, we are going to talk to some of our epidemiologists. We're going to talk 
about the issue of second doses for older people. And I've just seen some very disturbing numbers that said in some places, even first doses for people over 80 are lower than for the rest of the population. And it's certainly not because they're vaccine hesitant. It's because the arrangements don't work for them. We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now that our vaccine supply is ramping up, advocates are demanding that the province start administering second doses, prioritizing the most vulnerable older population before giving 12-year-olds their first doses. Uh, At the same time, new numbers show that people over 80 actually have lower vaccination rates, and this is for their first dose in Toronto and Peel, than other age groups. And the problem is not vaccine hesitancy. So what do you think? Is it a good idea to vaccinate the kids before giving vulnerable older people their second doses? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Alon Baseman, infectious disease and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and uh, Dr. Tanya Watts, a professor of immunology at the University of Toronto. Hello, and thanks for joining us. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, Alon, uh, I gather congratulations are in order. Thank you very much. Uh, welcoming a new baby. Um, so what about these calls to start giving second doses, prioritizing people by age, rather than trying to get through the population of 12 to 16-year-olds? Dr. Vaisman, is that a good idea? Yeah, I think uh, vaccinating those who are older makes more sense, given that we know those individuals are more likely to have severe outcomes related to COVID, including hospitalization and death. And given that the most important aspect of the pandemic is, of course, to prevent that, the people who are less than 18 years old are far less likely to experience those bad outcomes. And also, it seems less likely to experience chronic symptoms associated with covid so given that, if you think back to four months ago, numerous individuals who are still who are 80 and above still haven't gotten their second dose, I think it makes sense to prioritize those individuals. Dr. Watts, do you agree? Yes. So we know that, in fact, there have been um, second outbreaks in long-term care homes and even deaths in people with a single vaccination. Um, a lot of our community-dwelling seniors, as you mentioned, some of them haven't even got dose one. It's a lot tougher for them to go line up in a pop-up clinic. So we really need to make sure we're getting to those people. And we also have to be concerned about these new variants because emerging data is that protection with either one dose of AstraZeneca or Pfizer against some of the new variants uh, is only 30% after one dose and 80% after two doses. So the UK started with a 12, uh, sorry, a 12-week gap for their AstraZeneca vaccine, and they've actually moved it back uh, second doses to eight weeks. And even though they think they might get better boosting longer, they still get very good boosting, but they need it now to protect against the variants. And don't forget the older people are more susceptible, will have a higher viral load, possibly more transmission of the variants, 
than, a, say, a 12-year-old who, isn't going, who clears the infection much more easily. So I think that it's really a crucial time. We don't have to necessarily stop vaccinating the 12 to 18, but make sure we don't do it at the expense of getting those second doses in from the 80-year-olds down, over 80 down. And also I'm very concerned about the immunocompromise. We have thousands of people who take immune modulatory drugs, and publications have shown that one dose of the vaccine gives a very poor antibody response. And many of those people, depending on the particular medication, uh, actually get a much better response after two doses. So many of those people are feeling completely trapped and unprotected by dose one. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to a woman whose mother is in a nursing home in isolation because there are outbreaks among the staff. And even though 96% of the residents have had two doses, they've just had a couple of cases among residents. So there are these breakthrough cases. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, I mean, I, this is probably a political question, but uh, what is holding up that calculus in your, uh, you know, in your opinion? I think to some degree it's the inertia of how the direction of the vaccination program has gone. There's been always a, a plan to go from older individuals to younger individuals, starting way back in February with a prioritization schedule. And with the direction coming from NASTY initially to space out the doses and to give one dose only at that time. So perhaps it's just time for the, those people making those decisions just to revisit that, that sort of initial plan that was rolled out, especially now that we have more doses rolling in of Pfizer, particularly in Ontario, that we can actually vaccinate the 80 and above groups sooner than we thought that was initially possible. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it I mean, I, I would, you know, I would say that some of it is also ageism and, and you always, you know, there's this issue about going back to school and all these people who ended up getting vaccinated ahead of the most uh, vulnerable elderly. I mean, now we've seen some of these numbers from Toronto and Peel and people over 80 aren't getting their first doses either because of a language barrier or a mobility barrier or because there's no one who can go with them. I mean, um, you know, they seem to have figured out the pop-up clinics in, in the vulnerable areas. Dr. Watts, I mean, wh what do you think when you see that number? Yeah, well, there was a, a study uh, that was presented to the Ontario Science Table. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of the physician. And he'd calculated there were certain buildings in Toronto that they're not care facilities. They just have a huge number of over 65s in them. They tend to be where people retire. And we need to continue to do targeted vaccination figure out where these people live. And also the family doctors, it's felt that they've really been underused because they know their patients, those patients trust them. I think it would be much better. A lot of older people don't feel safe lining up. Well, they can't even. They can't stand for hours to line up. So that's been a problem. And I would just to add another comment, if you look at the, the question about going back to school, in Israel they had a strict age-dependent rollout. And by the time they got to the 40-year-olds, and don't forget, they were doing the second dose continually, rolling it out three weeks behind the first dose. They actually completely uh, suppressed their cases to a trickle, including in the under-19s, and they did have schools open through that time. They just had a mask um, requirement in place in schools. So we're not saying that we don't want kids to go back to school or that we have to completely stop that group, but I think what we'll find 
is if you give the second doses uh, to the most vulnerable and you uh, continue this uh, phase rollout with dose two following dose one, we'll get the disease uh, under control, the spread under control faster, and that will protect everyone. Yeah, I mean, if you vaccinate the kids' parents... Uh, who probably aren't that old, then then they will be protected by that. Mm-hmm. I I guess you know one of the problems or a, one of the concerns with that theory, Doctor Vaseman, is that again you're looking at the so-called hotspot areas, and and that's where we see that the oldest, most vulnerable are not getting vaccinated in good enough numbers. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely been an issue over the last few months, uh, getting access to those individuals, having encouraging them, and then also bringing it to them. Because, as you mentioned, there are barriers for those people to come out and get vaccinated. So at this point of the pandemic, it's about coming up with creative solutions to be able to access them and to provide them the vaccines. Those individuals who have yet to be vaccinated, they, you know, they're they're at the tip now. The bulk have been receiving the vaccine, and those individuals. Uh, you know, they're still vulnerable while while they're in the community and they can't be forgotten given that they're still at risk of being getting COVID and being hospitalized. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it actually kind of uh, boggles the mind. And then you, you have a situation with second doses where, you know, for instance, I keep coming back to this phone call from a woman whose 97-year-old father lives at home, is not a burden on the system, but but his home care helpers, like they won't guarantee that his that the people caring for him are vaccinated and he doesn't have she he doesn't have a second dose. Yeah, there's so many variables when you look at how the people who are older living in the community, how many variables at play in terms of their risk of acquiring the infection. And as you mentioned, you you know, just because you're not living in a long-term care facility doesn't mean you're not vulnerable, doesn't mean you're not coming in contact with many healthcare workers who themselves may have COVID or other people who come to provide care for you, such as family or friends, those kinds of essential partners. So, yeah, there's there's still so many other variables that put them at risk. Yeah, I mean, I thought that paramedics were going to be getting to those older people who are vulnerable. Uh, You know, why is it so tough to get to them, Dr. Watts? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure why, but I mean, as I, again, I suggest many of them do have family physicians and, you know, they interact with the healthcare system and that may be part of it. And um, we also, as I mentioned, there's some knowledge of where there's a concentration of older people, um, and again, maybe having uh, door-to-door vaccination as opposed to pop-up clinics may be required in some of these areas where there's a concentration of a lot of older people. And, you know, get pick up the ones who missed first dose and get the second dose into the others. I mean, I think it's really important. And don't forget, the more severely ill someone gets, the higher the virus load, the more chance of new variants emerging. So we really, it's good for everyone to get the most vulnerable protected earlier. Well, and and it's interesting, Dr. Vaseman, I think it was your group at UHN, they they ran pilot projects of seniors' buildings in the community and just went and vaccinated them. And, and as always here, you have good pilot projects that just don't end up being scaled up. Yeah, there's a lot of great work being done by various members of the community, usually their interdisciplinary staff as well, physicians, nurses other uh, pharmacists, all sorts of people who are pitching in 
And looking at these focused areas, uh, specific locations that are low on the vaccination uh, uptake and finding ways to get to them because, as you said, there's so many barriers for some patients to go out there. And yeah, the UHN happens to be well-resourced, happens to have the expertise as well to go out, but there's going to be some areas of the city in the greater Toronto area where the resources are not currently there to be able to get to those people. So yeah, specific attention needs to be paid for those areas. Uh, Dr. Watts, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think the more people that are fully vaccinated, the more we protect society as a whole, including those most vulnerable who are either very old or immunocompromised who may never make a good immune response. By everyone around them doing their bit and getting their vaccine, we're going to help everyone. Dr. Vaisman? Yeah, I absolutely agree. We're, we're, very end, we're at the very end of this pandemic now. This is third wave. And uh, getting everyone vaccinated is a great message to get everyone on board to benefit every single person in our society. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Tanya Watts. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, well, there is one group that will get second doses uh, before the four-month interval. And those are people who are getting AstraZeneca shots. We have more details on that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. One group that can get second doses before others are people who are receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine, and that's because it's no longer being used for first doses. Since that announcement, pharmacists were inundated with requests before they had enough information, and today there is more clarity. And I'm on the line with frequent contributor John Papasturgio, pharmacist and pharmacy owner with Shoppers Drug Mart. Hi, John. Hey, Hi, are you there? There was a little audio glitch there. Yeah, I'm here, Libby. I'm okay. Here, Libby. Good. So uh, I remember we were in touch uh, last week and you said you had no AstraZeneca and now you have, what, about a thousand doses? Yeah, we got about a thousand doses now. I I mean, that's how fast things change. Uh, We don't always know exactly when we're going to get supply, but uh, we are in supply now. It's kind of a a crazy environment here in uh, in the pharmacy and we've got many, many people calling the store uh, to see if they could get access to the vaccine. The way we're handling it right now is anyone that got their first doses with us here, we're, we're reaching out and booking appointments for them. And then based on the supply, we'll, we'll start giving it to others. But it, uh, it still is a relatively small amount given the number of patients we vaccinated initially, right? Yeah. I, I, how many patients did you vaccinate initially? It, it's hard to say. I think at my store, it's probably, you know, over 3,000 patients. So we don't have a enough for everyone as of yet, but we'll get there. Uh, you know, I've been told we're, we're going to have access to more. So uh, hopefully over the next week or so, we'll be able to get to everyone. Now, uh, I just want to get a clear sense of how this all happened. So presumably what you have now are uh, the doses that are going to expire on May the 31st, and those were redistributed by the province, right, to some of the pharmacists that gave them out initially. Yeah, exactly. And it's not to all the pharmacies. There's select pharmacies in uh, Toronto, London, and Windsor. So I think that's some of the challenge right now. They're not, they haven't gone out to every single uh, pharmacy that was given initial doses, uh, but, uh, you know, a selected few. 
Okay, and and presumably the ones that gave out a lot of shots, like like your uh, pharmacy. I think so. I think that's the way they did it. I'm curious. There, there's been so much back and forth on the AstraZeneca. Yesterday, we had some very tragic news. Have you had a sense of hesitancy of people who don't want to take a second shot, or are you just overwhelmed with people who do? No, not right. I think I, you know, I actually was. I think at the initial, uh, the initial dose, I, I probably was fielding more questions around safety. I think. Uh, the people that are coming now are committed to getting fully vaccinated. I think uh, uh, they want their second dose, and the volume is is there that uh, at this point, any patient that's hesitant, uh, they'll just get bumped with someone that actually wants the vaccine uh, because of the short supply. Uh, obviously, we do we do get questions around what it means, the safety. Is there any initial uh, increased risk with the second dose? And so far, the data doesn't suggest that. They said the data suggests a decreased risk. That's right. With yeah, the second yeah, dose. If you're okay on the first, you're less likely to have any issue with the second dose for sure. Yeah, the, I mean, the rate for uh, complication uh, with the clot for the second dose is something like one in 600,000. No, yeah, no, very, very low risk. That's what we tell people at this point because there's still supply issues. I, I, I mean, I, I anyone that's a candidate or able to get vaccinated. I always, the message hasn't changed for me the entire pandemic. Get the vaccine, get it when you're first able to. It's very, very important. I mean, we had another patient here that, you know, has ended up in the ICU with a, just a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine, right? So Really? Uh, oh, that's oh, terrible. Yeah, absolutely ventilated. Uh, uh, so you're not, even with one dose, your risk is less, but it doesn't protect you 100%. So we want to get as many patients to getting their first dose and then as as many as possible getting their second. That's, uh, you know, at that point, we're more and more confident that we fully protect the Canadians. What about, uh, so this tranche is for people who got it in the first week between the 10th and the 19th of March, right? Yeah, anyone between uh, that got that first dose between March 10th and 19th, or we're proactively calling them. Uh, you know, if you fall into that category and haven't, you know, received a call, it's okay to call us uh, uh, at the pharmacy. But please, if you're not within that window, we're getting a lot of calls from people that got vaccinated at different times. Uh, just uh, hold hold on tight. Hopefully we get the vaccine and get to them as well. Well, my understanding, which uh, is, is that the optimal time for a second dose of AstraZeneca is 12 weeks, that the people from the first tranche who are getting a second dose, they're sort of at 10 or 11, which probably doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, there was a paper that, you know, highlighted the evidence or the efficacy across different kind of timeframes. Uh, you know, as you approach that that 12-week period, uh, incrementally, uh, the protection is about 11% higher. So there is some added protection. Uh, you know, we don't really know what the variance is, uh, you know, a week off here and there. Uh, uh, the reality is, I think, because of the supply issues, because of the short dating, I encourage, you know, anyone that's a candidate, let's get it. Let's not worry too much about that that small variation, because I think the added benefit uh, definitely would outweigh the potential risk of getting COVID and, and becoming severely ill. When it comes to the next tranche of people, uh, I uh, at first was confused about whether we even took delivery of the next 
shipment, but I believe that the province now has it. It's something over a quarter of a million doses. It just hasn't been distributed. Is that right? I've heard the same. Uh, unfortunately, I don't always get uh, more information than that myself. Generally, the way it works is uh, once it's ready to be distributed, that's when I'll find out. Uh, and they'll tell me, you know, how many doses I'm getting and when. As of now, I haven't received any additional information, but I have been told that they do have more vaccines. So I think I think the idea is let's get through this this uh, lot here. And as soon as that's done, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to get get some more and get, and get some more people vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So it and the province then decides how it's distributed or how does that work? Absolutely. And that hasn't changed since the beginning of this uh, and it, it hasn't changed depending on the vaccine distribution is entirely uh, determined by the province, uh, where it's going, the pharmacies it's going to, hotspots versus non-hotspots. We don't have a lot of say in that. It's not like a flu vaccine where we self-distribute or whatnot. It, it totally is uh, uh, determined by uh, the province. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long do you think it'll take to go through this supply, both at your pharmacy and in general? Well, yeah, I can't speak for the other pharmacies, but I think given what we have, most of us will be out either by today or by tomorrow, I'm pretty sure. Like, I, I don't think the, the vaccine will last beyond tomorrow, given the demand we have right now. So it's moving very, very, very quickly. I know there was a lot of anxiety in those patients that got AstraZeneca early because we didn't really know when we were getting the second uh, doses for them. And now that it's become available, there's this, like, urgency to come in and get vaccinated. And I understand that, right? Uh, and because of some of the uncertainty around, hey, when when will the next batches come? I think that's why we have so much interest right now. As supply levels out, I've seen it even with Pfizer and everything else, that demand will kind of level out as well. People will become less anxious and uh, feel a little bit more confident that we'll have enough vaccine for everyone. There's some kind of registration online. You're saying that that your staff will be reaching out to people, but there's some kind of registration online where you put in your postal code and see where it's available. Do you recommend people do that or just try to I would go? Say no. At this point, it's fine. I mean, to do that, I just I just know the way we're managing it here is where we're proactively calling the patients that would be uh, the ones that would be eligible first. And based on the amount of vaccine we have, like we're gonna we're gonna fill it with those patients. So, I mean, I think that strategy will probably work down the line as more vaccine becomes available. But for this first limited batch, I would just uh, wait for a call. If you don't didn't get a call and you fall into that, uh, you know, March 10th to the 19th, uh, you know, reach out to your pharmacy. If you're beyond that, I would just hold tight. Mm-hmm. And again, do you have any uh, speculation or any? idea how long it would take to get the next batch, given that it probably is in a warehouse here? Yeah, if it's here, it's fast. They get it to us pretty quick. I'm thinking, and this is just my opinion, that we might be waiting for this a short-dated batch to, to run through it first. Once we run through that uh, uh, you know, batch, I think the other one should come pretty quickly. That's, that's generally what I've seen. Again, it depends on, I think, the province looking at where is it needed most where the you know highest number of cases, or maybe where the highest number of patients that haven't been haven't received the second doses, and, and uh, you know maybe that's the way they do it. But I have no doubt if we have that much vaccine sitting in a warehouse, we'll get it in the pharmacy pretty quickly. What would you like to leave us with, John? Just uh, you know, hang tight. Uh, you know, if you haven't fallen in that first batch, you don't you don't have to show up. Don't call the pharmacy. We we literally 
can't handle the volume right now because we're dealing with so much. Uh, you know, I hopefully the next week we get to everyone. And the message I always uh, leave people with, please don't shop around for vaccines and timelines and this and that. If they call your number, get vaccinated. It's important to be vaccinated as early as possible. And hopefully we'll get through this mess uh, together. Okay. Good advice. Thank you so much, John Papasturgiu. No problem. Thanks, Libby. Good to hear from you. Okay. Bye-bye. And that's all the time we have for today. Jane Brown will be in the chair tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.